You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Here we are to podcast, here we are to throw down. Welcome to the Worship Review. I'm your host, Tyler, joined <laughs> by Colin. That's nice, Tyler. You you you, di- you didn't quite transition from the sing-songy to the normal voice. It just kind of... Flowed. It's like a musical, almost. Yes. It's pretty good. I'm Colin. I'm a history professor. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. And what we do on this show is examine the texts of Christian worship music, broadly defined, intentionally broadly defined, yeah. because, because I don't know how we could do this if it were narrowly defined. No. And because somebody has to do it. If someone has to do then it. Surprisingly few people do it, right? Yeah. These, I mean, my goodness. Ostensibly, these, at least as far as I can tell. Certainly not. Yeah, I mean. I think the people who are doing it are working in this industry, and they're not looking at I, I don't imagine they are generally looking at things like biblical accuracy, no. um, consistency, or anything like no. that. No, is this going to sell? Uh, is this going to sell downloads? Is this going to uh, be played in churches so that we can get licensing fees? I think those are the main. I think if you're if you're a music producer, those are generally the concerns that you are dealing with, and I have no doubt. That there are some exceptions. I mean, think about the Ann Wilson song that we did recently, Colin. Yeah. Where it was, it seemed pretty clear to me that she had actually written this song herself. It seemed like she was very sincere about what she was writing and then even included some Southernisms in it and things like um, Forgive All My Guilty, where it was clear, I think, that she had written this and was... yeah. Um, Concerned with more than just what will sell. Yeah, now, now uh, you know, and that influenced you. Now you speak like that all the time. I know. I, <laughs> <laughs> it is, I can't it, stopping. It just, yeah. all the word categories got <laughs> it, mixed up in my it, brain. You totally changed your PhD thesis, right? <laughs> yes. Now working on... No, neologisms and, and novel right. word formation strategies right. in American English. That would be a fun PhD, actually. To Someone should do it. To do. Someone, not me. We're looking today at Tim Hughes song or tim hughes's song depending on how you form possessives in your dialect of english here i am to worship an old an oldie an oldie but a goldie old golden oldie as they say here i am to worship here i am to bow down here i am to say Yeah, Tim Hughes' song, Here I Am to Worship, is a very popular worship song yeah, in and, many evangelical churches. Right. And so just for folks who don't know, Tyler means popular because by, in terms of, uh, you know, quantity that this song is sung in churches. We have been looking at the list of the CCLI Christian Copyright Licensing International. International which documents like every time your church does a worship song that is almost certainly reported to ccli 
and then there's fees that are paid to the artists that wrote those songs. And then there's a record kept of that song being sung in a church. And so CCLI keeps track of the songs that are being sung in churches in that way. And so, you know, there are songs in the top 100 that are decades old. And this is one of those songs because this song is decades old at this point, more than one, I think. Here I Am to Worship premiered in 2001. Yeah. So two decades, decades. old now. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, what we do on the podcast is we just give a little summary of the song, and then we go through the lyrics, thinking about content, theology, comparison with scripture, emphasis on the gospel, those sorts of things. And then we give it a kind of final rating out of five. You rattle those off in a very conversational way, but these are actually fundamental to what we're doing on the podcast. And I I think at some point it would be worthwhile for us to be, to maybe have an introspective episode where we look at what we're doing and why we're doing it, because uh, we'd like to be, initially what we were doing is actually trying to be as, um, I guess you could say naive to the song as possible, not taking context into account or anything like that. And I think that probably hampered some of what we were doing because it just became, it, it, it came across as being intentionally stupid. Yes. Which we don't want to be, uh, we don't want to be intentionally stupid. And now I'm actually curious, Colin, now that you brought this up, if we ought to do an episode on what it means for Christian copyright licensing international to be using the intellectual property system in this way oh to goodness. continue to collect revenue from churches. I don't even think most people talk about that. No. I think it's kind of taken as status quo, but what would it look like for uh, churches to be able to sing a song without fear that they would be sued for copyright yeah. violations or something if they no. don't report it? That would be a great thing to tackle on our season recap, I think. It would be in a tough conversation yeah, too, it would be, but it'd be worth step on some toes for sure. Yeah. And not to say, I don't think that Christian artists shouldn't get paid or something like that. Of course, I think they should. I'm sure that's what you think. Paid, but <laughs> You just want everyone to not get paid like, like we didn't get paid, right? Uh, okay. Well, let me say some things about this song, Tyler, I guess, in general. So it's a song with a lot of here I am's. There's a lot of statements about being here and being. Uh, and it's also a song in which you get a nice mix of objective statements about God and then how those statements affect a believer. So this is a song about a believer having an encounter with Jesus and kind of experiencing the beauty of Jesus and the majesty of Jesus and contemplating what Jesus did on the cross and what that means and then sort of reflectively worshiping. So in, in, in a sense, it's a very simple song. And as we get into the lyrics, I think we can evaluate how well the song actually, I don't know, does what it, what it claims to be doing. I don't know if I missed anything. No, I think that's, that's good. So it opens, it's called here I am to worship, but it opens in a uh, different way. Step down into darkness Open my eyes, let me see Beauty that made this heart 
adore you Hope of a life spent with you It opens with Light of the world, you stepped down into darkness Opened my eyes, let me see Beauty that made this heart adore you Hope of a life spent with you yeah, so we got scriptural references right off the bat. I mean, very famous one, Jesus is the light of the world. He says this himself in John 8, 12. Uh, so, you know, clear, clear euphemism for Jesus that comes right out of scripture. It would be difficult for anybody who's even basically familiar with scripture to miss the fact that Jesus is the one that's being talked about, even though Jesus isn't mentioned by name. He's He's this euphemism for Jesus, this title for Jesus is being used, Jesus, the light of the world. Uh, he stepped down into darkness. Uh, what is darkness? Is it, I don't know, a dark, sinful world? Is that what that, is this saying Jesus came to the world? Uh, is it saying something about sin? And darkness in many songs is a, is a euphemism for sin. I'm not really sure that, we know what the darkness is, but there is a sense of condescension. That is a biblical concept as well. The idea that Jesus condescends, he humbles himself um, and becomes a man, becomes the second Adam to die on the cross for our sins. So we've got that there too. Uh, we've got this uh, biblical metaphor and also biblical reality in the idea of eyes being opened is not necessarily a discussion of blind blindness, but just closed eyes, which could be blindness, could just be eyes closed. But this is something we literally see in scripture that Jesus brings sight to the blind, but it also is perhaps a way to frame a, a metaphor for, again, maybe sin, right? The song doesn't give us enough language to say for sure that Tim Hughes is talking about sin here, but somehow his eyes are open. I mean, he gains knowledge. He understands he's a sinner. Maybe he just doesn't know who Jesus is and he finds out. It's very vague, but again, it's not, it's not out from left field. This is a biblical idea of having one's eyes opened and being able to see. And then we have let me see beauty that made this heart adore you. I presume, and maybe you can talk about this in a minute, but that maybe that's a connected sentence. Uh, otherwise, it's just beauty that made this heart adore you with no, it's an incomplete sentence fragment. Um, so I presume it, maybe it is you, that Jesus stepped down into darkness and, and opened my eyes and let me see beauty that made this heart adore you. I presume this heart is his heart. And we presume that the beauty, I don't know what the beauty is. Again, it, it's kind of a nice idea. I would like to see more here. Is beauty a euphemism for Jesus himself? Or is it the beauty of Jesus that made Tim Hughes' heart adore Jesus? Again, I'm not 100% sure. And maybe you'll clarify when, when I stop talking. But I'll say one more thing about the last bit of this verse. Uh, and then the, the the there is the last line of hope of a life spent with you. I, I don't know. I found this phrase a little bit weird. Hope of a life spent with you. I presume that means this life. Maybe it means forever. Maybe it's like life eternal. 
in sentiment, it's a nice thought. I'm just not 100% sure what it means. So I guess in essence, Tyler, what I'm going to pitch back to you is there seem to be some strong concepts here and some biblical language here, but I can't, if I really am thinking about it and not just caught up in the emotion of singing it or hearing it sung, I actually am not 100% sure what all of these things mean, apart from a few of the more declarative statements. Do you, Can you help me with some of this? I think I can, Colin. Let me start with this light of the world stepping down into darkness. As you have said, this is a scriptural title for Christ, light of the world. And stepping down into darkness reminded me of John 1. And I think yeah, that sure. is the best lens in which to interpret this, because we learn in John 1 not just about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, as we saw in verse 14 of John 1, but even at the beginning of John 1, talking about the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I think this is the key to unlocking what this uh, verse is talking about, because not only do we have this um, creation being spoken of when the songwriter says, beauty that made this heart, but we also have the life um, shining in the darkness, and the darkness not overcoming it. So I think when we see stepping down into darkness, I don't think we have to wonder too much about what this means. I think this is the uh, unenlightened state of mankind, the okay. un unregenerated hearts of men, because I think that's the best lens in which to interpret Christ opening his eyes. Okay, he was that's... not yet saved. He was not yet regenerated or uh, justified. Okay, that's a nice thought, and it would then work well with the third line, which is beauty that made this heart adore you, which emphasizes God's work in changing the worshiper's heart. I think that connects yeah. great. And no matter how you look at it, the last two lines of this verse, beauty that made this heart adore you, hope of a life spent with you, are uh, it, they're nouns that are given more definition by something that follows them. So in the first case, it's a noun with a relative clause following it, beauty that made this heart adore you. Well, that made this heart adore you modifies beauty. And then hope of a life spent with you, this is a prepositional phrase, uh, modifying hope. So we have beauty and hope, and uh, no matter how you look at it, that last line at the very least is going to stick out. Because if we have this verb, let me see, if you use the verb see without an object, it's talking about the capacity for perceiving light with the optic nerve and mm -hmm. making sense of it, right? You can have objects following this verb, let me see a dog, let me see a cat, let me see beauty. That's fine, right? And I think that would make sense. You open my eyes, let me see beauty that made this heart adore you. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. But then there, I don't know what to do with the hope. D does that, is that coordinated with beauty, just missing a, an and to mm -hmm. coordinate it? So you let me see beauty and hope, I think possibly. Yeah. Let me see beauty that made this heart adore you. Let me see hope of a life spent with you. Or is this just a disconnected fragment 
I don't think the answer to that can be known just by looking we at the words. Yeah. Maybe listeners can tell. But um, <laughs> at the same time, uh, even as a disconnected fragment, it is it is not a bad concept, sure. right? A life spent with Christ is a life well spent. And yeah. it is a great hope to spend one's life with Jesus. In fact, I think you would say, I, I would certainly say for my children, that is my hope, that they will... Uh, live their lives uh, walking with the Lord. Yeah. So it's not the fact that, that the grammar here is a little bit unclear, doesn't create problems, which to be honest, sometimes does. it does. It absolutely uh, does. But you know, it still, it might've been nice to have, have a, a complete sentence so that we could know exactly what it might, it might enrich this, but it doesn't necessarily make it a terrible thing. Yeah. And unfortunately the, song well maybe not unfortunately fortunately for the music the literal notes of the song the the melody is pretty consistent in when it starts a phrase but unfortunately for the language uh that means that that constraint has overrided the need for complete thoughts in the text because you you have space here to say gave me hope of a life spent with you or something like just a verb in the past tense like let uh or opened to make sense of the hope there's room for that right yeah a beauty that made this heart adore you yeah you got a few extra syllables in there that you can use right yeah so they weren't used and uh we don't know what to make of that because we don't know the songwriting process yep okay here i am to worship I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. <laughs> I'm bobbing my head because yeah, it's very syncopated. Here it's I am to say that you're my God. <laughs> do, do, do. So many different ways. You could do a polka version of this. There's a lot that could happen with this. But, but let, here I am, Colin. Okay. What's, what is it about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so here I am. This song says here I am a jillion times. Okay, is that a problem? I don't think so because Scripture actually has got – there are lots of people in Scripture that say here I am. Uh, we've got uh, Abraham. He says it in response to God in Genesis 22.1. Jacob says it in response to God in Genesis 31.11. He says it elsewhere in Genesis as well. Moses says it uh, in Exodus 3.4. God calls out to, to Samuel, and Samuel says, Here I am, Lord, in uh, Samuel th- uh, 1 Samuel 3.4. Isaiah says it most famously. That's the most famous, I think, uh, you know, I heard the voice of the Lord, you know, and Isaiah says, here I am, Lord. That's Isaiah 6, 8. This is just a a, a common response in scripture to, to God calling out to somebody. So I think that's one thing to note. 
And it ties well with what Hughes has done in the first verse. God is doing the work in the first verse. God is changing uh, Hughes's heart or the worshiper's heart. And God is also opening the worshiper's eyes. And so God is doing the work. And then there is a response to God, which is here I am. Uh, and what is the person here to do? They're here to worship and to bow down, um, to say that God is their God. And then they do say some things that, like, like they do actually worship. They declare that God is lovely altogether and altogether worthy and wonderful. I'm very curious what you're going to have to say about to me, um, but because uh, we have talked about that before, uh, these are interesting phrases to say about God. So, I mean, the idea of bowing down, a biblical form of worship for sure, form of worship that implies great honor towards a a superior. It would be done to a king, certainly would be done to to God. Um, But there's also this personal aspect of of God being a personal God to the worshiper. Mm -hmm. And God being lovely. Lovely is... uh, we hear we read about we read the word love and hear the word love in quite a few worship songs. Lovely is not as common, and you could define lovely a few different ways. I don't know what Hughes was thinking, but it, it's a person a person who is lovely is a person who kind of elicits love. They're they're such a beautiful person, or they're such a person of high esteem or worth that they just demand love almost like they they are a person who who just brings love out of others um towards them because of their attributes and i so then in a sense it sounds like a kind of uh trite word at first but if we look at what it means lovely is actually a, a nice word to apply to god if you define it in the way that i have obviously worthy is a pretty self-explanatory term and then Wonderful also is a word that we see in scripture applied to God. And again, we have to me, and maybe I'll get your thoughts on that, on some of this first, and then I'll have some further thoughts. But Tyler, what do you think? Well, the phrase to me is ambiguous. As we've said before on the show, it can mean two different things. On the one hand, it can mean, in my perception, Mm -hmm. you are wonderful. You are wonderful to me. The movie was good to me or to this critic, or to those critics who found it worthwhile. Um, it can also mean, to me, can also mean um, with respect to your uh, dealings with me. So you're altogether wonderful to me means... Towards me. Could also mean you're also, yes, wonderful towards me in your dealings with me. In the past, you have been generous, kind, faithful to me. Now, if that is the case... I think we have said in the past that 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 can be a little bit of a problem. It could be. It could be. Why is that? Um, it's almost like a, a, a logical, philosophical problem, right? Something can be lovely to me without being actually lovely in reality. Yeah. But it, conversely, something can be lovely to me and be lovely yeah. in reality. So, So what it does is it kind of emphasizes the subjective interpretation yeah. as opposed to objective reality, right? And we want it, when we're talking about God, we want, 
it's fine. Obviously, we have subjective experiences of God, and that's biblical. We will mm-hmm. have individual, and we have individual experiences of God. At the same time, that doesn't ultimately affect who God is objectively. God is God has objective right. attributes. Um, I, I think this chorus, like like you said, we see subjective aspects in that the person is worshiping, bowing down, and doing having a kind of personal or subjective connection to God. But again, depending on if to me is meant to apply to all of the last three lines or just the last of the three lines, it does seem like the person is also saying some objective things about God, that that God is altogether lovely and altogether worthy. Again, I guess we, I don't know if altogether wonderful to me, if that to me is meant to kind of retrospectively apply to lovely or worthy, but if it doesn't, then at least lovely and worthy are objective things. And and there are, in the verses, there are objective statements yeah. made about God too. Coming so up. The, so there is a nice mix, right, of objective statements and subjective statements. And I would think in a good worship song, you would you would definitely need at least some objective statements. You don't want a worship song that's all mm. comments that have to, comments about God, statements about God that have to be mediated by an individual, right? Mm. I would think that wouldn't be ideal. I, this is getting into kind of meta analysis of what the liturgy should contain, but I would permit such a song with the proviso that there are other songs in the whole service that give context. So if you have a song where it's, it's totally, um, subjective. It's totally, I perceive you to be good. I perceive you to be righteous. I look at the heavens and I see how wonderful your power of creation is. I think that's fine. And that's biblical. Uh, I mean, that's the yeah, language sure. from yeah, the yeah, Psalms. Definitely. Yeah. Psalms are um, like that for sure. But, well, actually looking at the heavens is a little bit difficult because yeah, said yes. the heavens exist outside of ourselves. Yeah, I didn't we want to are, be pedantic and bring that but up. No, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. Um, and, uh, like we've said before, a lot of the subjective statements we might make about God are often given in response to or in meditation upon some objective action that God has taken in the past, like coming to earth yeah. as Christ uh, and having an earthly ministry here and dying on a cross for our sins, which is recorded in actual real history. So we meditate on that. We can say you are good, gracious. I perceive you to be loving and be reminded of those truths. Mm -hmm. But if we just had those subjective things to say, I would not reject it outright, but I would really need to be scaffolded in a a worship service with some uh, objective statements okay yeah that makes personally sense. that would be my take on this i i wonder how to interpret these statements following worship here i am to worship here i am to bow down here i am to say that you're my god i'm wondering if these compound on the idea of worship or these expound on the idea of worship do these clarify what's meant by worship or are these saying oh. i'm here to worship and i'm also here to bow down and i'm also here to say that you're my god because oh. um it, i don't i don't take the position that in a worship service, there are certain uh, postures and words that must be said by the people. Yeah. That's not my position. And I, I don't think the songwriter is making this 
argument, but there are many churches where bowing is a part of the worship service. Yeah, an expected part. Recitation yeah. of certain words, even creeds, uh, is mm-hmm. a part of many worship services. So uh, it, it's a uh, it's just a curious thought experiment for me. I don't know mm. if you have any thoughts yeah, on that. Yeah, I just thought of this. I mean, I think I just thought of it in a simple way, which was just this seemed like a list of things. Right. It wasn't uh, expounding upon the first idea of worshiping. I just saw this as I'm going to worship. I'm going to bow down. I'm saying that you're my God. Like these are just a list of things that I'm doing. Do you think if you did this song in a worship service at a church, obviously neither of us are doing this right now, but we used to, I don't think this would have bothered me before, but if, if I sang these words and then I didn't actually do the things that I said I was going to do, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I would be yeah. comfortable. I'd be like, all right, well, now everyone, uh, we have to bow down uh, and yeah. say that he's our God because we just said that we were here to do that. Admit Unless the, you interpret it yes. in a more abstract sense. Yeah. I'll admit that when I was doing this regularly leading worship as such, I, I, I didn't feel the need to think too deeply, uh, which is terrible, you know, about the kind of actions I was saying that I wanted to do or was doing. And then what I was actually doing, like, I just didn't, I kind of almost shut that part of my brain off because maybe it was inconvenient or I just didn't want to think about it. But yes, now when I don't actually have to lead worship as such, and I read some of these things, I just think like at this point, I would feel weird being in a worship service or church service, singing something like this and then not doing it. It would Mm -hmm. feel very insincere to me. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I I have more problem with it now. It doesn't mean you should avoid saying these sorts of things, but I don't know. I think it's this is you know, listeners. This might be something worth thinking about if you're singing these sorts of songs in your churches and having conversations with your pastor, or your worship leader, and stuff like. What is the right thing to do when we're singing? I will bow down, or I will lift my hands. Like, why aren't we doing that? Or you know, should we be doing that or should we be not be singing songs that say that we're going to do that if we're not going to do that? Like, I don't know. There's just, there's a conversation that probably needs to be had there amongst different churches. There are some church denominations where that is not a problem. Yeah. They're, they're, they're lifting their hands and bowing down and, you know, yeah. waving flags and stuff. You know, they're doing all sorts. They're blowing trumpets. I think you and I in a frozen chosen church are probably the outliers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. So it you know, for, other, for some people, this is not a conundrum. No, whatsoever. But for but for people that are not in charismatic churches, it's something to con- continue to think about. I think as we go through more songs yep. on this show, because it's. It's a challenge to me even to sing. I, I We sing songs sometimes that mention lifting your hands. And yeah. I don't, well, there are psalms that's, 90, that's, exactly, yeah. in, in the psalms, I think Psalm 134. Yeah. And 95%, 98% of the people, yeah. I don't think, lift their hands yes. when they sing it. And then I wonder, what what are we doing? What are we doing if we are talking about lifting our hands in the temple of God? Well, um we've already mentioned before on the show the the physical building of our church is also distinct from yeah. the temple of god and so if we understand the temple to be uh, first of all the body being a temple of the holy spirit but then also the church gathered uh, as a as a body being the church yeah. being the temple um 
what does it mean to lift our hands? Yeah, and then I mean, again, this is really getting into the weeds, but so I'll only. Speak. Uh, this is what we're here to do. Yeah, yeah okay, fine. Uh, and you know what? Yeah, let's get into the weeds. Yeah. I don't understand what we're doing <laughs> okay. for not getting into the weeds. All right. All right, so let me go even further into the weeds. Let me go into the, the the jungle brush here. If if you have a regulative principle of worship, that is, if your church believes that God has very specific ways that He wants to be worshipped. Um, and that might include the Psalms. It might be exclusively the Psalms. It might at the very least include the Psalms. And there are denominations where those kinds of ideas are true. What do you do then when the Psalm gives you an imperative Mm -hmm. to lift your hands? Like is not lifting your hands a a form of breaking, Mm -hmm. right? With what God actually says that he wants you to do. If, if, you, if you're in a denomination that says, look, the Psalms tell us how, what we are, the Psalms are what we are to sing, right? Or certainly a major part of what we are to sing. And the Psalms give us an imperative, right? It's a good question. Uh, but the Psalms give a lot of imperatives though that, uh, maybe not a lot, but well, some true. of the imprecatory Psalms give imperatives that I would not feel comfortable <laughs> following through with. Let's yeah, just say that. Sure, that'd be a little bit um, gory. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> King of all days, oh so highly exalted, glorious in heaven above. Humbly you came to the earth you created, all for love's sake became poor. Okay, again, uh, good scriptural references and and maybe semi-scriptural references. I don't know, Tyler, and I was just asked right away, I don't know of a King of Days title, right? I know of Ancient of Days. Yeah, and King of Kings. King of Kings. So you got Ancient of Days is Daniel 7, 9. King of all days, I don't know if... Hughes just meant to say ancient of days because you could have fit it in here, but maybe that's too weird for his audience. Maybe he wanted something. It's so funny because sy- syllabically it would totally yeah, fit. Yeah, it would fit just ancient fine. Ancient of days. Yeah, it would have fit. So, you know, I don't know what king of all days means. We can interpret it literally and say he is the king of all days. Yeah. From beginning to end. An eternal king, yeah. maybe to... I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think... It, there's nothing... I see in this that's problematic. It's just weird that he doesn't use the actual scriptural title from Daniel if he's going to use a title like this. But okay, whatever. Um, Highly exalted. uh, Yes, that is true. Uh, Glorious in heaven above. So I think this first half of the verse is meant to highlight Christ's majesty, Christ's lordship. Christ is king, Christ is God. And then you get the last two lines, which emphasize Christ's condescension and humility. So humbly, you came to the earth, you created. Beautiful, actually, really beautiful sentence right there, or sentence fragment. No, sentence. All for love's sake became poor. Uh, That bit is... uh, Okay, I, I all for love's sake. Now again, I don't. I'm not trying to be 
dense on purpose. But if I really think about that, love what? Love in general, the love of a particular person, for the love of Jesus himself, for the Jesus's love for the Father, um, for love of an object. So what does love's sake mean? I don't know. And again, maybe you can help me. And then also there's this idea of becoming poor, which I think we can interpret in light of the previous line humbly. So I think poor doesn't necessarily exclusively mean impoverished in a material sense. I probably could include that, but probably is a reference to poverty in terms of like the poverty of the human form, right? As in not God, right? If you compare the human form to the form of godliness, the form of divinity, right? The human form is impoverished, Mm. is poor. So I, I don't know. Do you have any clarifying thoughts on this one, Tyler? Colin, this question that you're asking reminds me of a podcast I heard one time about uh, text in worship music. And one of the songs that they were looking at was And Can It Be, which is a classic hymn, but it includes this line, emptied himself of all but love, referring to Christ in his humiliation, in his humbling himself as a human. And it's struck the podcasters, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who they were, as being false. Yeah. Because Christ did not empty himself of everything but love. And you're making, I think, a similar argument, right? Yeah. All for love's sake. Well, first of all, what does love's sake mean? And was it really all for love's sake? Was there another one? Certainly, there. It, it, certainly it is the case that God loves us and that the uh, the incarnation is a physical instantiation of God's love mm-hmm. for humanity, no doubt. Um, but the problem is when we say all, we are using a quantifier which is universal. And uh, I think most Christians would say reasonably that the incarnation was also about more than simply God's love for mankind. That is certainly uh, part of it, but more than that. Yeah. I suppose I would just want, it would be nice if he defined a bit more what was meant. I get the idea. If you just say love, it, it opens, it keeps open the, liberality of the love of Christ, because the love of Christ is liberal in the sense that it, Christ was going to the cross for multiple loves. He was, he was loving the father. He was loving us. Right. I I mean, it's true that there were multiple loves that were being displayed. He was embodying love. He was exampling love. And certainly it is the case that God is love. Yeah. So, we could even, if if you want, yes, you could say, look, all for God's sake, yes, because God is love. Yes, yeah, sure. So, so you know, all those things are true, and and you know, maybe that was part of the thinking of using this line, and maybe it's fine in that sense. But I personally, I wish for a bit more 
definition, I suppose. And again, that, that maybe that's a problem with me. I think you have a lot of problems, Colin. <laughs> There's one other thing I didn't bring up during the chorus that I wanted to talk about. This adjective worthy. You you uh, mentioned the interesting adjective lovely. Um, yeah. As I, I would read lovely as someone who has this kind of um, being around them is such a pleasure that you always look forward to their company uh, because they exude a kind of fragrance, so to speak, not a literal fragrance, but a kind of interpersonal fragrance of, yeah, you're kind of like that Tyler. You exude oh, a fragrance. Stop. Yeah. I've real, yeah. <laughs> I spent a car <laughs> ride with you not too long ago, a long car ride and oh, man. fragrances. Oh, let me man. tell you. But there's this line right after that, altogether worthy, and it's formed from a noun, worth. So you are of the utmost worth. And I don't even know if many people connect the two in their heads. Uh, Being of the pinnacle of worth is to be altogether worthy. But uh, that's my bone, not bone to pick, but... That, that's just something that struck me is that he's altogether valuable. He is of the utmost value. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. We have this line next. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross cross okay yeah i don't know how, how much i <laughs> this is a weird line because it sounds like it should be wrong <laughs> okay <laughs> to me um i in the very literal reading of the sentence the thing that will not be known as to how much it cost is seeing my sin mm-hmm. not actually dying on the cross right the thing that actually is being talked about is seeing my sin on the cross that actually doesn't have a huge cost. I mean, and also we can know that cost because one of the things that drives us to conversion is the knowledge that Christ died for our sin. In the most literal reading of the sentence, it's not exactly true. But I think what is meant by the sentence is we don't understand, we cannot know what Christ must have experienced to die for our sin. We cannot know the cost that Christ bore to die from our sin, die die for our sin because we did not condescend from heaven, become a man, endure the pain of the cross and endure the full wrath of God for sin. Like we don't have to know what that feels like because Christ took it. And then in that sense, the statement is true because we Christ bears the punishment for our sin. So we don't really know how much it costs. We can kind of know in an abstract sense, but in an experiential sense, we don't know. So I find this line probably well-intentioned in a very pedantic sense. It's not quite accurate if we just kind of suspend criticism, then it's kind of a nice sentiment, I think. Well, there's two components to it, and you've already made the connection that I made with 2 Corinthians 5.21, where when we say the sin upon the cross, we're referring to Christ. Yeah. Um, in 2 yeah, Corinthians 5.21, yeah. exactly. Um, 
it's written, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So um, this sin on the cross is certainly, even my sin on the cross is Christ um, who has become sin, even though he knew no sin. But then this, I'll never know how much it cost. I read this differently than you did. It sounds like you were saying, I'll never know what Christ felt that, being sin on the cross. That is that is a what I think is a generous interpretation of it. Okay, because I thought this was the same concept that we found in How Deep the Father's Love for Us, where the Father is looking on his perfect son on the cross and following through with yeah. this sacrifice. And in, in a kind of sense, in the way that Abraham never had to, yeah. right? When Abraham is going to offer Isaac, he, he did go through actually a lot of the ritual. He's bound him. He's put them yeah, on the he's altar. he got the knife up in the air, right? Yes. And God spares his son. But in, in, in the context of Jesus, the son is not spared. He really does yeah. endure that. And um, I do think there is a true concept here in that you and I will never know what love it would require to sacrifice one's own perfect son for yeah. enemies. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we benefit from that love. We hope to know more of that love. Mm -hmm. uh, and one day we will experience that love fully when we are fully glorified. But, um, yeah, the, the cost is too great for me to comprehend. Yeah. I mean, again, here, this just adds, I guess, to maybe the challenge of this. Isn't that part of the sanctif? I mean, there's a classic model of sanctification, which is, you know, as we, we understand more and more about our sin as we experience sanctification progressively. And we also come to understand more and more of the forgiveness of God. Mm -hmm. You know, like those two things happen at the same time. Mm -hmm. Presumably, there is a point at which we arrive, when we arrive at sanctification, when we fully understand the depth of our sin and we fully understand the grace and mercy of God. So then at that point, would we not know how much it cost to mm. see our sin upon the cross? Not in an experiential sense, but at least in kind of a... a I do think you are correct that sanctification entails both a growing appreciation for the love of God for us, the grace of God, and a hatred for sin, and a repulsion even by sin, and, and knowing that it is the cost... But but also but also knowledge of sin like like there are there are things that I there are sins that I am committing that I that are so that that I am not sanctified enough to even see hmm. you know what I'm saying like hmm. I am still blinded to those sins in some respects yeah you know yeah so we yeah and I think we would say we see more sin in ourselves now than we did five years yes, ago and that's part of sanctification right right but the the asymptote that we're approaching, so to speak, the the, the uh, limit as we approach infinity, I still don't think is the knowledge that God has of what it costs, because we did not even in even in eternity, even in glory, when we are fully 
not just sanctified, but glorified. Will we have knowledge that God has of giving up his only begotten no. son? Sure. No, no, no. Not We won't have God's knowledge because we, are, we won't be God. Although the song doesn't say that, right? The song just says, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. Hmm. Like, oh, of course, like if that means I'll never know what God knows. Yeah. But it just says, I will not know how much it costs. I mean, you can know that without knowing okay. what God knows, sure. right? You, you won't know it, like I said, you won't know it experientially. You won't know it from God's perspective because we won't be God. But yeah, <laughs> if listeners listening to this are like, well, they're toying with, you know, we're really toying with blasphemy. We're just, no, no. these are thought experiments, right? It, these are very big questions do. from a very simple yeah. but, uh, statement. But you're, I think I see your point. The point is, we do know the cost. The cost was that God himself had to come to earth as a man. Yeah. And we already have to grasp some of that knowledge, even to be Christians. Mm-hmm. Like we have to know some of, we have to at least taste that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, maybe this is a question then about what it means to know the cost. Does maybe. it mean to have a, yeah. a a mathematical number of the the cost or does it mean to know Experience it in the more it. intimate sense? And unfortunately, unlike uh, German and many other <laughs> languages, English has one word for no. German has two. Right. One is like the more factual knowledge and the other one is more uh, f- familiarity. French does that too. So... Uh, but in any event, okay. Well, my po- <laughs> this okay. is a, a short, short line with a lot to yeah, ask. So, I mean, I'll just end it by saying so. For for all of these reasons, I think it would maybe something could maybe this could have been put differently. Yeah, I guess. But I do appreciate the the yeah thoughts that it generates. That that actually is helpful. Podcasting is scary, Colin, because <laughs> you kind of you don't immortalize, but you. Oh, you yeah. make your uh, extemporaneous thoughts yes. public and permanent in yes. a sense. You you have to have a certain amount of uh, humility, <laughs> and that's not a. I'm not praising. Oh, okay. Us, but I'm just saying, like you have to you have to be willing to let those things, yeah, be out there. When in a few, maybe even in just in a few months, you might think something different, and you might just kick yourself for having said those things. But yeah, you do that. I I have <laughs> never changed my perspective on anything (laughs) you're already there that's true you have made it Um, anyway (laughs) i mentioned tyler's younger than i am uh okay where are we concluding thoughts at this point that where we're at yeah here i am to conclude this was quite the song man yeah there's some deep thoughts in here i think buried I, i don't want to say buried deep they're not buried that deep but behind simple phrases like i'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon the cross is there's actually a lot of profundity underneath that simple statement intentionally or unintentionally. Right. And we'll never know. And (laughs) I, I like that the song is calling people to worship God, calling him maybe some novel names like King of all days, but also uh, declaring him to be highly exalted, glorious, uh, referring to the incarnation as well. So there's a lot to like about this. I agree. There's a lot to like. It's uh, for what it claims to do, or, you know, it's very, it's simple and it largely executes its mission. It, it also 
references aspects of the gospel. I would like those references to be more clear and more specific, but it's still pretty good. We got the cross, you know, we've got, um, you know, various titles for God that are biblical. We have a few that are semi-biblical, but not unbiblical. Um, we have euphemisms for changed hearts and changed, you know, uh, of regeneration. We have euphemisms for regeneration, like changed hearts and opened eyes. Again, I, I think a little bit, there would be places where the language could be more concrete, which would help, and more clear, which would help. But for what it does, it doesn't take too much work to unlock what's in the song. And then there's obviously stuff in the song that's more deeper. I do think that that bridge needs to be better. And and that for me is does factor into the rating in the end. Okay. What did you give it? I gave it, this is Inside Baseball. I gave the song three out of five JDs. And this is very Inside Baseball. A um, lawyer? No, um, I had I had a friend. I have a I have a friend. His name is JD, and he um, is a worship leader. And as I was listening to this song, you keep hearing Tim Hughes just kind of go up into the high harmony, and and just kind of he's he kind of he doesn't quite stick to the melody often. And um, I have my friend JD when he leads worship, he gets excited and he just can't help himself sometimes. And he just starts, even though like we're supposed to be tracking him with the melody, he would sing these harmonies. And it was never, it was always done out of exuberance and enthusiasm for what he was singing. And it was so wonderful. And my wife and I both always really appreciated it. And uh, and it was just, as I heard this Tim Hughes, who's British, singing in a British accent, singing these high harmonies, I just thought of my friend and it just really warmed my heart mm -hmm. and reminded me of just the joy that it was to be led by him in worship. And so anyway, that's, I'll honor him by giving the song three out of five JDs. Wow, you're breaking my heart over here. This is just so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I I like to see that in. Um, I I like to see people who are kind of blissfully unaware of themselves in a, in a healthy way while yeah. leading uh, the music because mm. if it feels too much like they're concerned with their image yeah. or their sound or anything like that, then it just becomes like a well, like kind of a self-absorbed performance. Yeah. And if, yeah. if it's just praise offered sincerely, I think that's good. No, and JD was, is such a good musician that he, um, you know, he could pull it off. I mean, he, he, it was effortless for him to do that. And it was, but it was just this little, it was just this unique thing about him that was really special. Mm. Nice. And is, I presume he's still leading worship somewhere. Mm. Yeah. What about you, Tyler? What'd you rate the song? I'm going to give it four out of five synthetic strings because <laughs> yeah. this song makes heavy use of violins, violas that are, uh, I think pretty clearly synthetic. If I'm wrong, then they are maybe badly recorded <laughs> or, or just extremely robotic humans playing yeah. the violins. But. Oh, 
Yeah, I, look, I, I I have to say, I don't know what it is in me, but I almost wanted to give it a lower rating mm. because th- there's just not a lot of meat here, so to speak. Yeah. There's not a lot of rich yeah. doctrine yeah. laid out. But at the end of the day, I don't know why I have made that a qualification in my head. Okay. So it's it's something to ponder. So at the end of the day, I think it's not a five out of five, but there's nothing in it that's extremely objectionable. Even like this, I'll never know how much it cost mm-hmm. to see my sin upon that cross. I'm willing to permit it right. to say that. Whereas for me, I think that was the thing that just felt, felt like I needed to nudge it down to the three. But like you, I agree. If I had slightly less of a problem with that line, this would have been a four easily, okay. and, which, you know, is pretty good rating for us. We don't normally give fives out very often. So yeah, I feel bad for our students, you know, <laughs> have to deal with these grading standards. Well, listeners, if we've missed something or if there's some obvious thing that we are wrong about or some obvious thing that we're right about, we'd love to hear that from you, especially if you can uh, give us that confirmation bias that we so desperately need. Yes. And We're both millennials. <laughs> we need a claim. I need approval. So yeah. if you could just approve of me, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> we have gotten some feedback called, I'll, I'll even mention this, that uh, one of our, one of our listeners wrote to me and said, uh, he, he took issue with the uh, label of worship leader. And I think uh. we've used this on the podcast several times in a kind of tongue in cheek way, because I think, uh, I think we're actually closer to the listener's position on yeah. this than uh, he thinks because uh, he was saying, well, you can't just take that name. I, and I'm paraphrasing cause I don't actually have his words in front of me right now, but um, y- you know, what were you doing to lead the worship specifically? If what you were doing was particularly leading the music. Mm. Right. Um, and I think this is a, this is a defect in the Christian lexicon where worship praise and worship music is, uh, is become synonymous with, Worship has become synonymous with, with music, music in the way that um, I don't think is healthy. So yeah. when we talk about praise and worship music or even worship music or even Christian worship music, um, we tend to intentionally, not intentionally, but unintentionally, when we talk about Christian worship music or worship vaguely, referring to music, we are unintentionally tying the two together when they need to be kept distinct. And yeah, so when we true. declare ourselves to be worship leaders, we are taking upon ourselves a mantle that is a lot heavier yeah, that's true. than what we're actually performing, which yeah. is a band leader, basically. You know, this is a good we should talk about this obviously in detail at our on the season recap when we talk when we do with listener feedback. I'll just say this briefly right now, which I'll mention again when we talk about it in the future. Um, I, I agree with the problematic language here and I agree with everything that you said. The challenge is I've just, I was just recently reading, a work by a law professor named David Gruel, uh, Gr- Grival is his, how you pronounce his name, but it's G-R-E-W-A-L. Um, for scholarly reasons, he talks about something called network power and he says that, um, often in order to access networks, we use language 
that we use the language of more dominant networks because we don't want to lose out on the benefits that come from engaging with those networks. And so in this case, in the podcast, we're using some terms that even you and I would have some problems with because we know that if we were to be, if we were to use different terms, more biblical terms, people would not know what we were talking about, Hmm. right? So we kind of, so I think, but part of the consequences of that is that we'll probably have to explain ourselves and kind of engage with this. And it's good for us to do that. Yeah, I agree. So maybe this is a good thing for us to chat about in addition to the other things we've already decided we'll chat about in our in our series recap yeah. at the end of the series, do you think? Yeah. And for the record, worship leaders is in quotation marks on our Twitter bio. Okay. So it, we, uh, maybe we haven't been as obviously tongue in cheek as yeah. we need to be, but I, I definitely share with the listener these uh, concerns yeah, about here. that mantle, that Agreed. moniker. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, listeners. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.